Selena Martini and Rich Linkoff. You know what time it is. Welcome to Legal Face Off. Two lawyers trading jab for jab. So hit them up with any questions you have. Welcome to another edition of a home edition of Legal Face Off on WGN. I'm Rich Linkoff, one of your co-hosts. Tina Martini is here as well. Tina? Hi. How's everybody doing out there? Doing great. We are missing Sam, who is having some tactical issues, but perhaps he'll join us for the legal grab bag. But really busy show. Lots of great issues. We'll be talking about arguing before the Supreme Court by phone with one of the country's most prominent Supreme Court um, advocates. We'll be talking about custody issues that the pandemic uh, is bringing up, some relatively new issues. But first, we're talking about federalism, uh, a, a concept very much on the news over the last few days, with one of the most prominent folks on the planet, we will say, um, on this issue. ACLU Director David Cole, National Legal Director, I should say, of the ACLU, which is the American Civil Liberties Union. He manages over 300 ACLU staff attorneys in all 50 states and litigated many seminal cases before the Supreme Court. His most recent book is entitled Engines of Liberty, How Citizen Movements Succeed. David, thank you so much for joining us on Legal Faceoff. Well, thanks for having me. So a few days ago, President Trump uh, told reporters, when somebody is the president of the United States, the authority is total. Uh, does the statement, David, bear any resemblance to the executive branch's power set forth by the Constitution, specifically the Tenth Amendment? Now, I, I would say when somebody is president of the United States, maybe he should be required to read the Constitution <laughs> before making statements like that. Because, no, it, in, in no way, shape or form does the Constitution give the president total authority. In fact, the Constitution, you might say, was written out of concern about people like Donald Trump who believe in total authority. Back then, it was King George, not Donald Trump. But the concern was we don't want an executive who exercises uh, absolute authority. And so we have separation of powers. We have the president can only execute laws that Congress passes and lead the military as commander in chief. Those are his only powers. He doesn't have the power to make law. He doesn't have the power to direct state uh, and local governors or, 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 or police officers to do anything. Um, he has the power to execute laws that Congress has enacted. And that's it. So Trump then seemingly changed course a day later, saying that states' governors should decide what's best for its citizens. What role does a central national government have versus local authorities under situations such as a national emergency? So that's a great question. Um, you know, I, I think it would be permissible for Congress to enact a statute that sought to um, provide for a national a solution uh, to the coronavirus problem because it's obviously a problem that uh, that crosses state borders. Um, uh, so it's not something that the federal government could not address were Congress to actually enact a statute. But in the absence of a statute, given the executive branch the power to do something in this area, it, it, it redounds to the uh, responsibilities of uh, state and local government officials. And even when the federal government has the power to legislate over some national issue, and it could, in theory, over this issue. It is barred from compelling state 
um, governors, state police, any state official to carry out that federal program. It can, you know, tell the FBI and federal law enforcement, uh, you know, to, to carry out a federal program, but it cannot require state officials to carry out federal programs. That violates the 10th Amendment to the Constitution. So it really is for better or for worse, it is, it is a decision for each governor to make, um, you know, in, in, in collaboration with the governors in neighboring states. So, David, that point has led to what we've heard from governors, which is they ha- are competing against each other for yeah. equipment, for ventilators. They're um, competing with FEMA. We have the, uh, you know, treasurer of Illinois meeting a vendor in a parking lot, a McDonald's parking lot, giving a a million dollar check to a Russian operative. Um, We heard Governor Cuomo describe it like uh, eBay for 50 states. We had Jared Kushner stand up and call the national stockpile stockpile ours and not to the states. It's a mess, right? So is this what the framers intended? Do you think the framers are turning over in their graves hearing some of this stuff? You know, I think, you know, absolutely in the sense that Um, What the framers understood was that we needed, we were a nation, we were the United States of America. And the reason that they enacted a constitution and created a federal government was to deal with problems that crossed borders. Um, And the problem is we have a leader who seems incapable of dealing with a problem that crosses borders in a coherent way and who got rid of the you know very teams that would have been in place to deal with this pro- problem had he not gotten rid of them before uh, before the, the 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 matter was an emergency so you know ideally you have a congress that assesses the problem in a collaborative fashion with all of the state, uh, you know, governors, we come up with a national plan uh, and it's executed in a coordinated and thoughtful fashion guided by public health authorities. Instead, what we have is a narcissistic uh, leader who can't admit that he has responsibility for the problem, simply wants to shift blame to other people uh, and is not doing what he needs to be doing and claiming that he has total authority. It's, it's a disaster. ACLU National Legal Director David Cole, thank you so much for joining us on Legal Faceoff on WGN. Please come back and join us again in the future. Thanks for having me. Rich Lenkoff is an attorney with Bryce Downey and Lenkoff. Rich is consistently recognized by clients like United Airlines, McDonald's, Macy's, Dollar Tree, and the Chicago Bears for his outstanding litigation results. In 2015, Target named him their top outside litigation attorney in the country. Rich has received a number of industry accolades, including Illinois Super Lawyer from 2015 through 2019 and Leading Lawyer from 2012 through 2020 designations given to less than 5% of Illinois attorneys. Rich is also an active member of his community, including serving on organizations like the Advisory Board of Legal Prep Charter Academy and the Board of Visitors for the Northern Illinois University College of Law. In addition to his full-time practice, Rich is a prolific producer with credits including Elvis Presley's Heartbreak Hotel, 85, the greatest team in football history, starring Barack Obama, Bill Murray, and the coach, Mike Ditka. And Renegades, a live show in Las Vegas starring Terrell Owens, Jose Canseco, and Jim McMahon. In addition to co-hosting Legal Faceoff since 2013, Rich is the legal analyst 
for The John Williams Show on WGN Radio. Bryce Downey and Lenkoff is a full-service litigation firm practicing general liability, workers' compensation, professional malpractice, business transactions, and intellectual property, among other practice areas. For more information about Rich and Bryce Downey and Lenkoff, please visit BDLfirm.com. That's BDLfirm.com. Joining us next on Legal Faceoff is Carter Phillips. Carter is a partner at Sidley. He is one of the country's most experienced Supreme Court and appellate lawyers, having argued 79 cases before the U.S. Supreme Court, more than any other lawyer in private practice. He also argued nine cases before the Supreme Court during his tenure at the Solicitor General's office. He clerked as well for Chief Justice Warren Berger of the U.S. Supreme Court and Judge Sprecher in the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Seventh Circuit. Tina, I'm out of breath because that's only a small portion of Carter's very, very lengthy and distinguished bio. Carter, thank you so much for joining us this morning. My pleasure, Rich. Thanks for having me. So we're covering a really, covering a really interesting topic, uh, which is, follows the Supreme Court's announcement that for the first time in their long history, They will hold oral arguments by phone for 10 cases over six days in May. Of course, as I mentioned, you've argued many cases before the Supreme Court, none by phone. You have argued cases by phone in other courts. What is the biggest adjustment that people like you and other advocates will face before the Supreme Court by having these arguments by phone instead of in person? Obviously, the most difficult part is not having the face-to-face interaction with the justices. I mean, the reality is, and and I I know this because sometimes I have to go back and read the transcripts, and and I will read the transcript, and it leaves me with one impression, and yet I have a very different memory of how of how the exchange actually played out uh, in real time, and you'll lose that um, because you you just being able to see it twinkle in the eye, a, a, a bit of a smile, a, a, a very frowning <laughs> expression on someone's face uh, makes a huge difference in terms of understanding exactly what the nature of the question is in order to be able to, to give essentially the right answer. So I think that's the hardest part. So Carter, justices are famous for frequently interrupting lawyers. It's a pretty intense but somewhat short period of time when you're appearing before the Supreme Court. We've, we've read articles about how um, patterns of speech and interruptions are much more challenging um, over Zoom and other ways of video conferencing. What are your thoughts on how the way that the Supreme Court typically interacts and deals with oral arguments, how is that aspect of it challenge, more challenging? Well, I think the justices are going to have to change their basic patterns and approach because they can't just jump in whenever they want to. And, and, and part of the reason why you could do that when, when you're on the bench is it is a curved bench. And so they can actually see each other and therefore have a sense of whether they think their colleague is, has, has sort of hit the right, has already gotten an answer to the question that the advocate's expressing and therefore it's perfectly okay to jump in there you lose that my guess is it'll be a little more stilted i would expect in some ways fewer questions there will probably almost always have to be a a bit of a pause between the question asked and the answer if only because 
it's always hard to know exactly when a when a justice is done asking a question. I mean, somebody, I mean, it's hard enough when you're just when you're standing at the podium and Justice Breyer is giving you one of his three page transcript, three pages of the transcript question, and you keep thinking, okay, that's the that's the question. <laughs> no, that's the question. It's going to be that much harder when you're on the phone. Carter, what about some practical questions that I'm sure um, some of the lawyers who are preparing are going to be dealing with? Things like as simple as how do you tell the justices apart by phone? Um, You know, for example, Justice Sotomayor and Justice Kagan are both New Yorkers. Perhaps they sound similar on the phone. Uh, Justices Gorsuch and Kavanaugh are relatively new to the court. Um, is it possible to tell their voices apart and even apart from someone like Chief Justice um, Roberts, for example? So talk to us about that challenge. So it sort of raises two ideas in my mind. First one is you can always say your honor. So don't don't guess, I suppose, is the is the easiest way, at least in terms of communicating uh, quickly. Um, Back when Bush versus Gore was decided, they the, I got hired by MSNBC to an NBC to identify the justices from the oral from the oral uh, argument when it was released right after the actual argument. And the reason they asked me to do that was because they thought I could more likely identify the justices on the fly better than almost anybody else, which is probably true because I'd been there often enough and the court had been together for a very long time. But it, it's going to be a little tricky. On the other hand, if you're standing at the podium, a lot of times, even though the sound system is great, it does. it's not always obvious precisely where a particular question's coming from because it goes up into the, into the, into the entirety of the chambers. And so, you know, that part, I think the advocates will probably be better accustomed to it. There'll be a quick adjustment in their minds as to who they think that question's from, and then hopefully they'll go from there. But, you know, would it be easier if you, if you could get a a box like this that, that gives you a nice little yellow thing around Justice Breyer when he's asking a question. Yeah, that would be much easier to deal with. So, Carter, do you think there's a danger with less formality in proceedings these days for attorneys to treat the proceedings more casually, especially in light of some of the very serious issues that are being heard by the court right now? Well, I said so, said to somebody else earlier I guess last week that if it were me, I would do everything I do to prepare for a Supreme Court argument in exactly the same way, including on the day of the argument. I would get up early. I would go to the office. I would set up a podium. I'd probably set it up the day before and have everything laid out there and make my presentation and attempt to do the best I could to make my presentation precisely the same way I normally would. I I think the more interesting question or concern is your style because at least for me i tend to i try at least to be relatively conversational with the justices and um that's and part of that's because you have to you're you know they say don't read anything so you have to basically look them in the eye and it's hard to at least for me it's hard to do anything other than just have a normal conversation if i'm looking you right in the eye if you're hidden by virtue of a telephone, you certainly have written materials that you could rely upon and you could uh, script what you anticipate the, you know, based on what you anticipate the questions to be what the answers you would like to give are. And it's, uh, but that may end up being not effective 
it's going to be really interesting to see how that plays out because now you're giving scripted, somewhat stilted answers. And oftentimes, at least in my experience, the problem with that kind of an approach is that no matter how well you guessed what question you were going to get, question you get is not the same as the question you just heard. I mean, it's, it's not what you expected. And so, <laughs> so then you give this very structured answer to a question that was not actually the question being asked. Carla, given your 88 times arguing before uh, this bench, you know the idiosyncrasies of many of the justices probably better than anyone on this planet. So here's the most important question we're gonna ask you today. Which justice is going to be the most and least tolerant of the inevitable, you know, dog barking in the background? How do you think that the justices will react to things like that? Uh, I actually think they will all be reasonably okay <laughs> if that happens. As I said, if it were me, I'd go to the office to avoid that very risk uh, or any other noise in the background. Um, but I, I think they'll all, they're all pretty adaptive. And so my, my hunch is that uh, if something goes amusingly wrong, uh, the nice thing about it, you know, John Roberts was an advocate before the court. He's, he's pretty tolerant of the, almost anything that can happen. And he's got a great sense of humor. So my guess is he would just make a funny statement and, the, and that would relax everybody on the court. Um, Carter, it's my understanding that the public will be able to listen into these hearings. Is that, is that your understanding? Well, it, it's an interesting uh, statement in the order that it does say that it will be available to the media. And so it's not, I don't know exactly how they plan to, you know, put it into the media as opposed to just put it out into the public. But my hope is at least that it will be in fact available to the public. Generally, I would, I would candidly love to listen into a few of these arguments. Yeah, and, and there's some really important uh, cases on uh, of the 10. There's some really important cases, including one dealing with, you know, Trump's financial disclosure. So my question Absolutely. to you um, is... Do the other you thing that would be nice is that for, for cases that are that important and in a world that's as turned upside down as it is, I, I think it would be of some comfort to the public to if they listened in to these oral arguments to hear just how impressive... Uh, the justices are uh, in that setting. Um, it, you know, if you compare it, for instance, to what goes on right across the street on Capitol Hill, um, where everything is, is literally scripted and aides seem to be doing uh, an, an extraordinary amount of the work, the oral arguments, you see the justices that, uh, or hear them, you hear the justices themselves and their questions, and you know that those are questions that are, that, that are not scripted. They are uh, thought of, and then there are the follow-up questions, and then the follow-up questions, and the follow-up questions. I don't think you can help but be impressed by the thoughtfulness and the and the intellect, frankly, uh, of the individuals on this court. And I do think that would be a comfort to the public. Most definitely. My last question is: um, you know, the Supreme Court is famous for really standing firmly against opening up their arguments to cameras over the years, whereas other courts have done that. Do you think this might be a crack in that? And then maybe given some of the public's reaction, as you just said, um, to more transparency before the highest court land, do you think that might you know, lead to us getting more uh, our cameras in the court or, or more openness to the Supreme Court? I doubt it very seriously. Uh, the justices uh, 
are very protective of, of their private lives and, and of their anonymity. They take uh, comfort in the fact that only one or two percent of the United States public can, in fact, identify them at any given moment in time. And so I, I don't think they're going to want to make that change, which I think is unfortunate. Uh, it still, I suppose, in some ways grieves me that the technology was available, that we could have video or film of Thurgood Marshall arguing Brown versus Board of Education, Rex Lee uh, arguing Chata. I mean, there, for at least the last 50, 60, 70 years, television could have captured a lot of those moments in ways that I think would have been incredibly enlightening. As I say, you can read the oral argument. You can even listen to the transcript. But that does, I mean, listen to the argument, but you can't, that doesn't necessarily tell you everything about exactly what's going on uh, in that courtroom. And unfortunately, I don't, I don't think the justices are going to change their view on that at this point. Supreme Court and appellate court attorney from Sidley, Carter Phillips, thank you so much for joining us on Legal Faceoff. Thank you, Rich. I appreciate it. It's been fun to be here. We all know the legal world is complex and high pressured. There's no room for error. That's why judges and attorneys across Chicagoland have trusted the expert court reporters at McCorkle Litigation Services since 1948. McCorkle Litigation Services has accurately recorded every word from thousands of legal proceedings. McCorkle Litigation Services provides the legal community with peace of mind, transcribing testimony and depositions that can be used reliably by jurors, judges, and attorneys. For all of your legal support needs, contact McCorkle Litigation Services online at McCorkleLitigation.com. It's our pleasure to welcome to Legal Faceoff Marcy Newman, who is the founder of the law offices of A. A. Marcy Newman. She is recognized as a leading domestic relations advocate in Chicago and across Illinois. Marcy, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So, Marcy, custodial arrangements are very difficult situations to deal with, even under the best of circumstances. And having to address them during a pandemic makes them all the more challenging. What are the types of custody-related issues that estranged parents are currently grappling with in the wake of COVID-19? It's um, definitely an interesting period of time right now for custody issues. The word custody is no longer used, actually. It's allocation of parental rights and responsibilities. But one of the big things is you have a schedule that you most likely have already if you've been divorced. And it says what the timing is for each parent to have a child. Well, that could be thrown out the window with a pandemic. What if someone has been diagnosed in one of the families with the virus? Then you don't necessarily, and hopefully you look at it from the best interest of the child as the statute calls for, but in this time, it's even more serious. Do you expose a child to an environment where someone maybe already has the virus? Those are kinds of issues that arise now that normally do not arise. You want to make certain if there's a stay in place order, where does the child go? What does that do with a schedule that already exists in your judgment? And it goes on from there. So how do issues relating to people's work schedules, for example, impact um, the custodial arrangements? For example, people who now have to work from home, or out of work, how do those types of issues impact as well? 
you hope that these two parties um, already have put the child's best interest in the forefront. And from there, you look to what is each parent now doing? If the child was in school and the school then had an after or before school um, situation for their child to attend, what do you do now? There's no school. The work schedule of a parent becomes important because what if one of them still has to go to work, there's a pandemic going on and they're exposed to third parties. If the other parent, in fact, is assigned to stay home, then the parents hopefully will talk to one another and place that child, not what their judgment says, but what is in the best interest of the child during this unusual period of time. Marcia, you mentioned parents needing to communicate and put the children's best interest in mind. That's always important. Um, during this kind of emergency, it's obviously even more important. So talk to us about what you're seeing so far in the relatively early stages of this pandemic about whether parents are in fact working together to avoid additional and unnecessary friction, or is the opposite happening? Do you think that you're seeing your clients acting even more uh, in conflict and therefore to the detriment of their children? Unfortunately, I see both. Um, the fortunate part of it is I see it when parents are good parents, put the child or children first and acknowledge what is going on around them. Then they make plans and they make changes that keeps a child medically safe and secure. Unfortunately, I have the opposite also going. I have people saying, I want to take the child to New York. Everything is fine. Um, they're um, in place. They're isolating. But they fail to mention that one or two or more people in that group have already been diagnosed with the virus and they're taking someone from a secure place where they have been isolated in, say, Illinois, and then they want to take them to New York. Those are the kinds of things that aren't good. And that's putting themselves first and not the child. It's true, however, even without a pandemic, that people look at it in different ways. Hopefully, people will always look to their child's best interest, but hope doesn't always put it together. So let's say that there's a total breakdown. I mean, total breakdown in communication, a total breakdown in an ability to put the child's interests first. We have a situation where the family court system is essentially shut down. When a total breakdown happens, how do you enforce custodial arrangements when you're dealing with particularly contentious circumstances? Well, the really great news here in Chicago, even though I believe we are the largest single system in the United States for a court, the domestic relations is leading the way. We actually do have access. Um, if we hadn't, even at the very beginning when things were in disarray, the head of our division did an admirable job. And we could always go in on an emergency motion. You don't physically go there. You would have filed an action. And that would be an emergency that you have put the health of a child in harm's way. Now you can actually file pleadings. You can get hearings. You can do pre-trials. Um, it is really up and running almost uh, to the fullest extent it can. And each week we are getting more and more directives from our uh, chief judge of the Domestic Relations Division. So we can get there. But if you cannot get there, then the 
thing you do if it is really putting a child in danger is you check to see if a police department will assist you. But ideally, you should go to the court first. And we do have the ability to do that here in Chicago. Marcy, last question here on Legal Face Up. We just talked to uh, one of the country's foremost Supreme Court experts on the challenges of orally arguing a case before the U.S. Supreme Court by phone. Talk to us about some of the challenges you face in what you just mentioned, um, having to deal with these conflicts and some of these issues, not in person, but sometimes by phone or by a Zoom conference the way we're doing it right now. Actually, I've had no trouble, nor has my associate. I did a pretrial on a telephone. I unfortunately don't have the setup to do it in um, the capacity of a larger screen like the computer. My associate does. She's done hearings and prove-ups. It has been working well. Even when it was the emergency situation in the domestic relations division, the the judges know each other. And when an emergency came in blind, which is the way it was originally, where you just file it not with your specific judge the other judges would find the judge in charge of that case that it was assigned to and try and hook those two people up but now you can actually file directly you file to the judge and to the judge's coordinator and you get dates and they are doing in many ways zoom telephones computers and if it were possible they would even have people come in not obviously possible now so i think that our division and thank you chicago courts they are doing a great job for domestic relations in these trying times Marcia, I would imagine actually that it actually helps lessen the emotion that you or clients deal with from in-court appearances, from just seeing each other, which is obviously laden with a lot of passion and emotion. I imagine taking people away from court and doing it by phone maybe helps the situation sometimes. I didn't look at it that way, but it's certainly possible. It is a very anxiety-ridden situation for the two litigants to see each other in court, especially if that's the first time in a long period of time. For me, it's the computer that makes me anxious, but I'm getting there. And that was Marcy Newman, founder of Law Offices of A. Marcy Newman at newmanlum.com. Marcy, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Thank you both, and please stay safe. You are listening to Christina Martini on Legal Faceoff. Tina is a partner at McDermott, Will & Emery and focuses her practice on domestic and international trademark and copyright law, as well as domain name, internet, social media, advertising, and unfair competition law. Tina has received numerous professional accolades, including an AV preeminent rating by Martindale Hubble and being selected for many years as one of America's leading intellectual property attorneys by various legal publications, including Chambers and Partners and and World Trademark Review. Tina is also the recipient of the Anti-Defamation League's Women of Achievement Award and has been recognized by Crane's Chicago Business as one of Chicago's most influential minority lawyers. In addition to her full-time practice, Tina is an author, columnist, legal analyst, and podcast host, and she frequently shares her thought leadership with respect to current issues and trends impacting both the legal and business landscapes through various media outlets. McDermott, Will & Emery is an integrated international law firm. McDermott has an uncompromising commitment to legal excellence, extraordinary client service, and a high-performance culture. It is committed to helping clients achieve stellar legal and business results today and well into the future. To contact Tina and to learn more about McDermott, Will & Emery, visit mwe.com. Tina, I have to admit, I'm I'm happy to get through that part of our show because that was some, uh, those are some uh, heavy hitters in the legal world we just had on. 
Yes, brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. I felt like I was back in law school again, waiting to be uh, called upon with the Socratic method. <laughs> not, not to insult our guests, because you are all obviously heavy hitters and you're in industries, to use a Trump term, of course. But we're very, very happy to welcome our guests on the legal crab bag. We've got from beautiful Columbus, Ohio, a old friend, not old, but longtime friend and client of mine, from Abercrombie and Fitch, Aaron Rosati. Aaron, welcome to Legal Faceoff. Hi, thank you. Thanks for having me, guys. Joining us not from an Abercrombie and Fitch, but from somewhere else, right? From your home. <laughs> right, yeah. Quarantined from my guest room slash office. Absolutely. And Ryan Pollock, WGM producer, and again, you've got a resume like one of our prior guests that is very long, so I'll let you fill in the blanks. Ryan, tell us uh, what you do at WGN and also what some of the other things you do are. Yeah, I'm Dean Richards, producer on Sunday mornings at WGN, and I'm also in my senior year at Columbia College as a music composition major. Uh, just started my own little recording um, company, too, so I, I produce music for, for people as well as my own, and um, also do some video work for WGN, too. And last got a haircut in February, we understand. Yeah, yeah, it's been a while, and it looks like it's going to be a while. <laughs> Looking good. I got to ask you, because Dean Richards gets literally like every... Uh, prominent celebrity who comes through Chicago. What, what celebrity, I don't know, this is putting you on the spot, but what celebrity were you most in awe of? I mean, I, I know you've produced many of these shows, but who really blew, your, blew you away in terms of Starstruck? Uh, he did a Q&A with Julie Andrews at the Ooh. Chicago Theater. Wow. And uh, my girlfriend is a huge Julie Andrews fan. So I, I bought us tickets and we went and uh, I was thankful that Dean was able to sneak us backstage and uh, met Julie Andrews. That was probably my, my biggest starstruck moment. Yeah, wow. Julie Andrews. She's amazing. What was it like meeting her? Uh, it, you wouldn't even believe that she's, what is she, 85 years old or something? I mean, she has the, the energy of, of somebody my age uh, or even younger. Uh, so, yeah, it was, it was pretty nice to meet her. Very cool. Cool. You don't know this about Aaron, but Aaron is a fellow Springsteen uh, fanatic. And I know the answer to that question for Aaron is who most blew her away is not Springsteen, but one of the members of Hootie and the Blowfish. We ran, <laughs> we ran into it at a bar uh, where in Washington after a Springsteen concert. Uh, you were absolutely giddy with excitement meeting uh, the bass player for Hootie. I, well, I, I'm like, who is that? Rich goes, well, that's a Blowfish. Well, uh, obviously <laughs> a Blowfish. So yeah, claim to fame, we did meet one of Hootie's blowfish back in the day. Very cool. Well, let's jump into our grab bag because we've got seven breaking stories ripped, as always, straight from the headlines. The first one is um, a lot of lawsuits uh, against governors protesting the stay-at-home order. So we've seen, you know, a lot of protests on the news, a lot of people congregating in different states. They have also filed lawsuits uh, against Governor Whitmer in Michigan against the Texas governor. Um, probably four or five states' governors are facing lawsuits. People alleging a variety of infringements on their rights, including their Second Amendment right to bear arms, their uh, 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 freedom of association. People are protesting and, again, filing lawsuits in court, alleging that the governors are overstepping in the stay-at-home orders. Now, we just talked about Trump with David Cole. He had some very, let's say, vocal feelings about how he's doing. Trump has tweeted 
words like liberate Minnesota, liberate Michigan, really sort of baffling to think that he is telling people to protest their his own his own restrictions, right? I mean, these are national guidelines in many cases. So it's a little bit confusing, and Trump has, you know, not answered this question. But, Tina, what are your thoughts on some of these lawsuits alleging that people's rights are being infringed by uh, pandemic stay-at-home and quarantine orders? Well, I think that it's a very uh, case-by-case sort of a thing. So, so for example, taking people's right to get married and to get a marriage license, I think it's one thing to make sure that people have the ability to get a marriage license so that they can get married because sometimes they need to get married by a certain time or a certain day. For example, people are going off to... Um, to war or to serve military duty or about to get, um, you know, have to leave the country on a visa, that sort of thing. So I think it's one thing to close down the ability to get a license. And it's another thing to talk about people congregating to celebrate a wedding, which I think is a very different situation. Um, I think this whole notion, I think on the church issue, for example, the right to convene um, and to um, worship you see millions of people who are worshiping by watching masses um, and services for shut-ins. And I think that that is a lot more reasonable than having people get together in a church when we are being told that that is exactly the last thing you should be doing in terms of trying to stem a pandemic. So I, I think it's a mixed bag, Rich, and I think it's one of those things where it really depends on the situation and the circumstances. Aaron, you're in a state, Ohio, where the governor, Mike DeWine, was very proactive, one of the earliest governors to really shut things down. I remember when I heard the degree to which he was shutting things down, we were all very surprised. It turns out he was, you know, one of the first governors to do that, and rightfully so. What are your thoughts? I mean, we all understand that businesses need to get back to work and the company or the, the country's economy needs to get rolling again. Do you think this is the proper avenue to accomplish that lawsuits? No, I don't. I think DeWine has done a great job. Um, and I'm sure the numbers are much lower than they would have been had he not shut us all down as early as he did. Um, I just don't get to churches. I mean, I think Jesus understands just read your Bible at home or something. It's not, <laughs> You'll be forgiven. Um, and then the weddings, I, I, to Tina's point, I do get it um, in regards to insurance or for whatever reason that you may need to get married right now. But I don't understand why people are up in arms about not being able to have their wedding when I don't think half the guests would even want to go. So why wouldn't you just wait, go to the courthouse now, wait till this clears up and then have your big wedding when everyone can attend. Yeah, one of the signs I saw on the news yesterday, I think it was Michigan or Minnesota, said, Jesus is my virus. Um, I think there's probably 60,000 or so you know, families that would disagree with that sentiment. Um, but Ryan, uh, what, what are your thoughts on this? You know, a lot of people are using this issue in these lawsuits as a political statement. Obviously, that's always an issue. But do you think that if you were on a jury, for example, how would you feel about these lawsuits? Yeah, so it's tough, right? Because this is something um, we've never really been faced with in the modern society, especially with the way that our world works today. And I think that the toughest part about it is that everybody's looking for something to be mad at, but there's nothing to be mad at. So, you know, it, you 
get told uh, you can't go outside, you can't do these things that you've been used to for, I mean, these people are going to church, you know, how old are they in their seventies, maybe eighties, they've been doing that for, for how long? And now all of a sudden they can't do that. They have their routine down. So they're looking for people to be mad at. I, I get that. Um, but I don't know. I, I, I see some of the things that they've done in Sweden, you know, where they've allowed some of the non, uh, uh, they've allowed some of their non-older groups or demographics to, to work. Um, I don't know if that works here or not. Uh, I think that we are such a big country um, and, and we, we are so mixed in with our, each other's lives these days. I don't know if, if that would put older, older groups at risk to do that. Tina, uh, we have covered, I think a couple of shows ago, the, huge list of celebrity um, criminals, people who are incarcerated, who have petitioned the court to get them released from jail as a result of the coronavirus. One has succeeded, uh, a very prominent uh, incarcerated good fella. Tell us about that story. Sure. So, Rich, as you said, there are a number of famous prisoners who have either fled the coop, so to speak, or who are trying to zealously. We've all caught the story about Michael Avenatti, um, but there's also Bill Cosby, R. Kelly, Bernie Madoff, and Harvey Weinstein, who actually contracted COVID-19. Well, Vincent Asaro, who is a reputed mob boss and a member of the Bonanno crime family, was recently released from prison um, as a result of concerns that he may contract COVID-19. Um, he is currently being held at the U.S. Medical Center for Federal Prisoners in Springfield, Missouri. He's 85 years old and is actually not in good health. I mean, he's had a stroke, suffers from paralysis, and a brain disorder that's known as aphasia. And so he was released um, as part of the effort to try to protect people who are um, more susceptible and who are imprisoned. And so he's now um, at home. Um, it's interesting. I mean, I think this is one of those things where it's a case by case thing. I mean, you've probably read the stories that Bill Cosby, for example, claims that he's in infirm enough health that if he contracts COVID-19, that he probably won't make it. We know Harvey Weinstein has already gotten it. Um, so I think that as time goes on, we're going to continue to see more and more of these cases being argued. And from what I can tell, I think the judges are actually being pretty strict. And for the most part, they're not granting these requests. Now, uh, Tina, you know, because you know me, but Goodfellas is my favorite movie of all time. And Asaro was charged but found not guilty in the Lufthansa heist that forms a crucial part of Goodfellas. Um, so that's really my favorite part of the story. But he was found guilty for uh, for arson, for ordering his associates to set a man's car on fire after being involved in a, an incident with him on the street. So one of the takeaways, Aaron, is uh, don't get into a road rage incident with a uh, former mobster. Probably... Right. Yeah, that, yeah, that's a good lesson. And also, you know, it's just very Al Capone-ish that, you know, I'm sure there's been a lot worse that's happened right. over the years with Vincent. And, you know, if, if, if you're someone like Vincent, you know, try to steer clear of these little incidents that could end up getting you in jail when you've been able to successfully avoid it under other circumstances. Yeah, yeah that's the kicker. Look at all he's gotten away with. And then that's that's what puts him in. <laughs> 
Yeah. So, I mean, Aaron, we should should the more privileged uh, among the population of incarcerants be treated differently? Obviously, you know, folks like um, the people that Tina mentioned, like Harvey Weinstein, they have more access to resources, more lawyers, more money to plead that they should be released during coronavirus. On the other hand, we see in Chicago, for example, we had last week on Cook County Sheriff Tom Dart and, you know, some uh, jails and police um, or some jails and prisons are riddled with coronavirus. And those people don't have the resources to get out like maybe this person had. What, what do you think of that? I don't think they should be treated any differently. I mean, put them in an area of the prison that's secluded from everybody else. And that's their quarantine, I think. I don't. And especially because, Ryan, if you watch Goodfellas and know every second like I do, you know that Goodfellas have a much better time in jail than everyone else. They got the, you know, they're, they're making the garlic in the pan. They got two kinds of wine. They got all sorts of meat. What's so, what's so bad with prison if you're a Asano? Yeah, that's what I'm thinking. I'm, I'm thinking I'm trying to get in. <laughs> it's a little bit easier exactly. for me. But, yeah. Uh, but yeah, I don't know. I, I, I agree with Aaron. I, I, I don't think you can, you can treat these uh, any differently. I guess the only thing that you could look at differently is the, the um, you know, what they're in for um, and then determine if they can go on house arrest or not. But yeah, I have to agree with Aaron on that one. Now go get your shine box. <laughs> all right, Tina, moving on to our third story. We always have, looks like we always got an intellectual property story on our grab bag, which is great because they're fascinating. And that is your area. So tell us about the latest issue, this one involving Selena Gomez suing for using her likeness in a video game. Yes. So to be contrasted with uh, tattoos, which we covered in our last grab bag, Selena Gomez filed a $10 million lawsuit against um, both the China-based seller of the video game as well as Mutant Interactive Limited, which is the British company that actually holds the copyright in the game. And what she sued for is the fact that um, she claims that they ripped off her image and likeness and embedded it into the game, which is called Clothes Forever Styling Game. And you can actually download it um, through the App Store. Um, apparently, during the course of the game, you're given opportunities to essentially pay additional money to play the game anywhere from 99 cents to up to nearly $100. And apparently, the way that they sell the game is that it gives you the ability to interact with um, models and celebrities. And Gomez claims that one of the characters is clearly based on her looks like her and has her whole persona and likeness. Um, she claims that she was never asked for her permission. What we know, um, what we call this in the IP world is right of publicity. Um, she claims that they violated her right of publicity. And she also seems to be pursuing a bit of a tarnishment angle on her reputation, claiming that it's a glitchy game. Um, it is not being rated well. It's only three and a half out of five stars out of those who have reviewed it. So my guess is that they will probably settle this one um, based on what I've seen. But it's it's yet another interesting case where a celebrity claims that someone through a game or otherwise has misappropriated their likeness. So, you know, we see this a lot, actually, in the video game world, because, you know, a lot of those video games are foreign made. And frankly, a lot of you know countries outside the U.S. don't abide by the same intellectual property laws that we do. Um, you know, seemingly in like, you know, sometimes these are really small games, not used very, uh, not very popular. 
do you see a trend of celebrities, you know, trying to sue more and enforce these things more? And practically, how do they do that? I mean, just tell us, like, does Selena Gomez have people who are out there looking at video games? Do celebrities have their attorneys trying to enforce their mark in these ways? You know, that's a great question, Rich. I can tell you from clients that are not celebrities that those that have a brand that's valuable will invest the money to enforce their brand. A lot of times now these infringements are happening online, whether it's through a video game or through websites or through social media networks. Um, And there are some very sophisticated ways for infringements like this to be caught. Um, I have clients that subscribe to online enforcement platforms, um, which I've actually done a lot of um, investigation on and work pretty closely with clients who are very sophisticated in this area. And you'd be amazed at the kinds of infringements that these platforms are able to catch. There's what, what used to be done manually by people who are like part of a marketing team or an IT team or even an information security team. A lot of it has now been um, has been mechanized and is one of those things that's outsourced with in-house and outside counsel teams really focusing on what's found rather than going to hunt for it. So um, Selena Gomez, in this instance, she said, you know, part of her brand is to be an inspiration to youth and to have a wholesome image. And when you have instances like this where someone is taking her her image and misappropriating it and using it in ways that could tarnish that, you bet that people are going to spend the money to enforce it. Yeah, Ryan, what are your thoughts on this? Uh, Should people like Selena Gomez be, you know, spending their time on this? Do you think it's frivolous? Do you think that uh, paying money to a Selena Gomez, this amount of money, for example, that she's seeking is something that these companies should do? Uh, I, I think that it's probably right for her to go. I mean, it's, it's her likeness and her image. So it's, it's probably right for her to go after it. Uh, what's scary about it is how big the, the internet is and how big the, the world we live in is that uh, how much of this stuff just goes unnoticed where they don't even really know that it, their image and likeness is being used. Um, I, when I first saw this article, before I read the headline, I clicked on it. I thought, that it was Selena Gomez is that all that. And then I saw the picture right next to it. It's a clear copy. Um, so I think, I think she has every right to go after it and she should. Aaron, Selena Gomez fan. From, uh, um, not so much. No, can't say. Uh, really was the witches of Waverly place. Was that her? Uh... I don't know. Yeah. I remember my sister watching that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Beats me. I think, though, she's more upset that the rating was only 3.5 out of 5. Maybe that's the reason behind all this. Well, that's <laughs> five-star. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, but, you know, as Tina's explained many times in our show, it's a great point because you will argue as the defendant in this lawsuit that, yes, while you may have used a brand without the permission, that doing so actually enhanced the value of the brand. Not to say that that mitigates things entirely, but it does have an effect if you could show that your brand was actually enhanced and the value of your brand was enhanced by the use. And to your point, if this was a low-rated video game, I think that adds, as Tina mentioned, uh, strongly to her argument. All right, so moving on to uh, some lawyers who are trying to do good, which is always a nice story. There's a lawyer in San Francisco who's come up with a uh, rather unique way to contribute to the personal protection uh, equipment shortage in this country. We've all heard about the uh, attempts to get 
you know, more masks, more gloves to our first responders. Well, a lawyer named Stephen McDonald has used the plastic covers to deposition transcripts that we all see all the time in litigation. And he has found a way to convert those to plastic face masks. Um, and he's done so by the thousands. Uh, he is now getting um, donations of plastic deposition covers uh, from um, court reporters and other attorneys, and he's contributing uh, with these covers. He has admitted that these aren't, you know, FDA approved, and they might be not appropriate for people on the front lines, but they're certainly useful in a lot of different ways. So, you know, nice to see a story of an attorney using some innovation to uh, give back. Absolutely. I really um, appreciated the story, thought it was very innovative, thought it was um, really just, you know, definitely in the pro bono side of things. Um, you know, I think it's one of those things, though, where, you know, just to be, you know, uber careful, it, it's always important to sort of get a sense as to what the limitations are of these masks, right? So I think they're probably effective in certain ways, but not so much in others. And so just making sure that there isn't um, blowback in terms of these masks being used in an environment that isn't necessarily appropriate. I mean, we're seeing oh, just a, a huge abundance of people making masks and selling them. Um, but sometimes they don't meet the standards they need to and just making sure that what is a great deed being done doesn't end up in a bad situation. Yeah, it's a great point. And Aaron, you work in risk management, so you see the best of lawyers and you see sometimes the worst of lawyers. And as nice a story as this is for an attorney to use a innovative way to give back, we will inevitably see the other side, which is people suing people like that for, as Tina points out, making a mask that doesn't meet standards and you'll see people suing, you know, people for getting the virus when using those masks. So, you know, we'll probably see, you know, the other side of this story as well. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. And how do they, that was, that's my question about this. Um, great deed, love what he's doing, but are they sanitized when they get to where they're going? Because how do we know where he's been or what he may have? Yeah, uh, good point for sure. Maybe, you know, the, the deposition transcript plastic is not the most sanitized thing you've ever seen. Um, all right, moving on, uh, everyone, to another story involving someone being arrested for violating a stay-at-home order. And all he did, Tina, was play some beautiful 70s rock music. Yeah. I love this story. It was like a law school hypothetical. So you have an IP lawyer who is based in New Jersey who decides he's going to play Pink Floyd's greatest hits on his porch. Um, the original intention was for him to do what we do here all the time on legal Facebook, Facebook Live, his performance so that his friends who he hasn't seen could watch him play Pink Floyd's greatest hits. What ends up happening is he takes his act to the porch rather than doing it from his living room and then a bunch of people end up congregating and causing what was considered to be a dangerous situation because people were not abiding by their stay-at-home orders. They weren't, um, they weren't distancing the way that they needed to. And so he was charged with reckless endangerment, disorderly conduct, violating emergency orders, and violating a couple of local ordinances. Um, he said, you know, that, and he actually started, it was not just 
him doing this and causing people to not socially distance, but it was the reactions of some of the people when the police tried to come and break it up. One of the um, the concert goers, so to speak, um, referenced that this was akin to Nazi Germany. Um, and so it really created this, this emotionally charged situation. Um, you know, what I thought was interesting was, and I looked at it from the perspective of, did he get a license to perform this music? Because it's one thing to perform it for your friends, but when you step out on your porch and start performing it for people you don't know, um, that's one of the rights under copyright that you need a license for from the owner. So, and a guy who's an IP lawyer, I mean, I was like, what are you doing, dude? Um, so yeah, I thought that this story was really interesting. Yeah, it's a great story. We've seen all sorts of, you know, arrests during this pandemic and people doing really dumb stuff. There's, uh, a New Jersey knucklehead hall of shame, uh, including one man who was charged with organizing a basketball game. We saw another guy arrested for breaking into a, liquor store or grocery store and in a short period of time consuming 70 bottles of uh, oh i saw that yeah it's like it was like a restaurant or something and it's like how does he consume 70 bottles of liquor right uh aaron any uh any thoughts on this story i mean we all like pink floyd but right who doesn't love some live music yeah exactly maybe not the best idea to congregate on the porch during the pandemic does he not have a backyard a basement Uh, there you go. And, and shame on the neighbors for being dumb enough to all congregate so close together, you know? Well, he played, right, he played, absolutely. Right, he played Wish You Were Here, which is, uh, I think, one of the top 10 uh, on the list of pandemic songs. You're a musician. What's your uh, go-to pandemic song? Can you give us uh, one oh, that you recommend for our listeners? I don't know about a go-to pandemic song. Maybe uh, Don't Stand So Close to Me, ah. please. That's yes. always a that's a classic pandemic song. I've had shows that have been, you know, shut down by uh, by bars. They've said miners are in there, and uh, this guy he claimed he, he didn't see everybody in his yard. Isn't that what he claimed that it was too dark to see? I don't know how you don't see it to the. I don't know how big this guy's yard is if he's playing Woodstock or something. But well, uh, Aaron, you'll appreciate this as a Springsteen fanatic as well. Uh, Aaron and I, as I mentioned, have gone to many Springsteen shows together. And early on, I started a thread on one of the Springsteen chat rooms of what's the best Springsteen lyric to, uh, you know, during a pandemic. And my first entry was, um, I've been working real hard trying to get my hands clean, which I thought was a pretty good, pretty good lyric. Nailed it. Nice. Let's move on to uh, Kim Kardashian's story. Kim Kardashian is a frequent visitor to Legal Grab Bag. What's going on with her attempts to become a lawyer? Well, so I think everybody knows at this point that Kim is studying by apprenticeship to become a lawyer. She's planning on taking the bar exam in 2022. She likes to social media a lot about Kim Kardashian. (laughs) And actually, I think that it's it's impacting and affecting her ability to keep up with her own keeping up with the Kardashians. So, but um, as every other law student knows, it's really tough when you when you don't have um, law school tradition to rely on. So she's uh, been socially distancing and watching Tiger King, and she's been um, actually creating law school hypotheticals based on the uh, Smash Tiger King from Netflix. Um, so it's actually pretty hilarious. Um, bottom line, she's just like the rest of us, Rich, and. She has the issues 
and the trials and tribulations that we all have in everyday life. Yeah, I can't wait till Kim K becomes a lawyer so we can get her on the show. Um, I, I'm not watching the Tiger King, Aaron. I, 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 I'm watching a lot, um, but I, I can't commit to the show because uh, I just don't want to watch that many ugly people on TV, to be, to be flat out honest. There's enough <laughs> ugly people in, my, in everyday world. I don't want to spend that much time with them. Are you watching? Yeah. And if not, what's your go-to recommendation during the pandemic for our many listeners and viewers? I did watch Tiger King. Under normal circumstances, I'd be embarrassed to admit it. But now that we're on quarantine, it's kind of my, well, what else was I supposed to do? Yeah. I just finished Ozark, the best. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ryan, what's your recommendation for our, our watchers? Uh, I've seen Besides Tiger King. Besides your podcast, of course, right? What's that? Besides your podcast. Besides the podcast, yeah, uh, Tiger King. I too have fallen. Uh, I've fallen victim to Tiger King's, uh, but, but also uh, the new Michael Jordan d- uh, documentary. Yes. series that that is looking really good. I'm excited for Sundays now. Yeah, have you guys watched that? We got through the first hour of the Last Dance. It's it's pretty amazing. Yeah. I will use this, of course, for a blatant plug to another amazing sports documentary, none other than. 85, produced by none other than myself, which features, ironically, a lot of the same folks who are in The Last Dance. We, they have Michael Wilbon. Well, guess who had Michael Wilbon first? Us. They have someone you might have heard on called President Obama. Guess whose documentary President Obama was in first? So, yeah, this documentary is amazing, and it's a good chance to look at some other sports documentaries. Last story, Tina, involves um, some attorneys being admonished for not maybe dressing up as much as they should for court hearings. We heard from uh, our friend Carter about the proper decorum before the Supreme Court and, and how to act, even though you're arguing on the phone. Some judges or some attorneys in Florida, according to one judge, apparently not following that directive because they're showing up for court hearings by Zoom in all sorts of disrepair. They are, uh, the judge said in this order, uh, that one attorney was in bed during a court hearing uh, under the covers. One showed up without a shirt. Uh, he said, this is Broward County Judge Dennis Bailey said, we've seen many lawyers in casual shirts and blouses with no concern for ill grooming in bedrooms with a master bed in the background. Um, he has asked attorneys to treat these hearings as actual hearings uh, and you know, dress up as you would in court, treat them seriously comb your hair, tie your tie. I think something that's important to remember um, as we enter this whole new world of court appearances by uh, by Zoom. Tina? I, I by, just, by the way, I say that ironically and last week for our very serious podcast, I was in a t-shirt this week because of the gravity of our guests and not to demean any of the other guests we've ever had on. <laughs> decided to dress up, but how should people dress when they are appearing by virtual in virtual court i think they should be dressing the same way that they would if they were appearing in person and you know if these folks are the type where you'd ask them you know would you appear shirtless in the courtroom if they're knuckle-headed enough to say yes well then they've got other bigger issues but let's not forget the woman who showed up in a beach wrap i mean that was probably her version of covering up and in, 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 in a proper decorum for appearing on a zoom video 
I just don't understand. I mean, these are folks that clearly have deep-seated issues beyond, you know, inability to dress themselves in the morning to, to think that it's somehow appropriate to be zooming into, you know, a hearing with a judge from a, from bed and being able to be recognized as being in bed under the covers. I mean, that's just crazy to me. And I actually wonder to what extent it's an ethical violation because you're not zealously representing your client when you do that. Right. Absolutely. Aaron, we also heard of a judge in Brazil who was literally caught shirtless uh, during a live, stream, a live stream court hearing. Judge Carmo Antonio de Souza was part of a video call with other judges um, who were all working from home. And he was sipping a drink, was bare chested when the camera went live and then walked off camera, came back in his shirt and tie. Um, and the state court held a tribunal into the incident and said that uh, it was only an innocuous mistake and it was only momentarily. But, you know, you work with a lot of judges. We don't want to see judges. We don't want to see attorneys shirtless at all. Am I correct in that statement? All right. For the love of God, put some clothes on. Get <laughs> Manage your time and know what time you're supposed to be on the meeting. Be prepared. And perhaps, you know, they should be wearing Abercrombie and Fitch. Yes? Yeah. Preferably rock the moose. Absolutely. I, I tell uh, Tina Aaron all the time that I have a couple of Abercrombie shirts left that still fit me because, you know, while I usually wear a medium in everyday life at Abercrombie, a medium is like an extra super small. So, you know, I struggle to get into that triple XL Abercrombie at my advanced stage. But uh, Ryan, um, do you think that attorneys are just being lazy? Are they taking advantage of this work at home situation? For God's sake, put a shirt on, man. Yeah, I think they're being lazy. I'm glad I put a shirt on yes. uh, for this podcast. I, I never thought that the coronavirus would bring out a world where Kim Kardashian's trying to dress like lawyers and lawyers <laughs> dress like Kim Kardashian. Um, Great points. But yeah, I, uh, I I certainly think that they're uh, being a little lazy. You got to dress for the job you want. Absolutely. Well, they don't even need the full getup. Just waist up. I mean, exactly. <laughs> right. Exactly. That's right. Business up party down below. <laughs> Right. <laughs> All right, guys. We'll let you go with uh, one last question. Um, we talked with Goodfellas earlier. That's my favorite movie of all time. Give us your favorite movie of all time. It doesn't have to be a mob-related movie. And, Ryan, it doesn't have to be a Julie Andrews picture. But it, it, enlighten our listeners and our viewers with telling us your favorite movie of all time. And maybe they'll be able to watch it during this stay-at-home period. Aaron, go ahead. Favorite movie of all time. That's tough. Um, I'm going to say The Princess Bride because I just talked Ooh. to you today, so it's fresh on the brain. Excellent choice. Thank you. Have fun storming the castle. Ryan. <laughs> yeah, I think mine is a prison movie. I think it's Shawshank Redemption. Mm. One of the best. Filmed in Ohio, by the way. Excellent. Oh, absolutely. Have you been to that? By the way, I want to go check out the... Uh, they're having tours of that prison. They have tours. Yeah, I haven't been, but I want to. And they do something really big around Halloween. Yeah, let's do that. Tina. Well, I think you know that I've got a couple favorite movies, Rich. Um, Goodfellas is definitely one of them. I think I've seen it 50 times. I think it's just incredibly brilliant, and it's my go-to movie. Um, and also, I feel like my worlds are colliding like George Costanza and Seinfeld because <laughs> The Sound of Music is actually my other favorite uh, movie. And Julie Andrews, I think, was gorgeous, and her voice is probably the, one of the best, if not the best, voice ever. And so, um, and she was probably, I don't know, early to mid twenties when she made that movie. And it was just such, you know, just from a cinematographic standpoint, um, Christopher Plummer was amazing. I mean, it was just a brilliant movie, especially given the era 
in which it came out. And so those are my two votes. Trivia question. Do you know Julie Andrews' husband is a director? Do you know a movie franchise he's most famous for directing? Anyone? His name is Blake Edwards. Yeah, Pink Panther. Pink Panther, of course. Yeah, and he passed away a few years ago, didn't he? Yeah, they were uh, they were one of Hollywood's power couples forever. Well, fascinating legal grab bag, as always. Anytime we could end with Pink Panther, it's always a good sign. Uh, WGN's Ryan Pollock. Ryan, tell us again where our uh, listeners and watchers can find you. Uh, for WGN, they can find us every morning, uh, nine to one for Dean Richards Sunday morning. Um, but I also have my own show at Columbia colleges, WCRX FM. So right now everything's on Facebook. So you can go to our Facebook page for that. And the hair looks great. Uh, Aaron Rosetti, of course, people can find you at home or at your work at Abercrombie and Fitch in Columbus. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Shop online. Abercrombie is still open online. Absolutely. And uh, Tina Martini from her uh, expansive property in uh, Evanston on the north side of Chicago. Thanks for joining us. For Sam, who's not here, who's mired somewhere in a a technical issue somehow, even though Sam, Zoom is the easiest platform to access. We're we're a little bit suspicious over this technical issue in the morning. And of course, Ben Anderson. uh, And for Emily Flores, I'm Rich Lankov. Thanks for joining us on Legal Face Off. We'll see you in two weeks. It's Christina Martini and Rich Linkoff. You know what time it is. Welcome to Legal Face Off. Two lawyers trading jab for jab. So hit them up with any questions you have. WGN Radio, we blowing up your stereo. Got a question? Just pick up the phone and they'll let you know. Covering sports, Hollywood, and don't forget the politics.